The History of the World podcast, written and presented by Chris Hasler. Volume 4. The Medieval World. Episode 15. The Franks. Part 1. The Franks were a group of Germanic peoples and as such, their origins are sketchy. It is suggested that they crossed the Rhine River late in the 3rd century, more or less crossing from the modern country of Germany into the lowlands of the Netherlands and Belgium in the east. This may have been around the time that the Roman military commander Carousius was asked to deal with the pirates of the seas of northwest Europe, and namely the Saxons and the Franks. We don't know a lot about the Franks during this period other than the fact that they were there, and they were not adverse to raiding the Gallic lands of the Romans. It would also appear that Frankish warriors were conscripted as mercenaries for Roman campaigns during their earliest known years of a relationship between Franks and Romans, so it is likely that some Frankish tribes were federati, which means that they were a group of people who had an agreement with the Romans written into a treaty. It was a highly regular thing for the Romans to make such agreements to maintain peaceful borderlands. However, there are also a number of accounts of Frankish raids and skirmishes on the Roman border, and undoubtedly Roman military generals would have had to have taken armies alongside Federati from other barbarian tribes to settle the Franks down. Quite typical behaviour of most of the barbarian tribes on the Roman borders. Being residents of the Low Countries and seemingly not too distantly related to the Saxons, the Franks would have been able seafarers and would have subsidised their wealth through raiding coastal lands of northwest Europe, but also establishing trade links with the peoples of Scandinavia and the British Isles. We recognise distinctions between different Frankish tribes being noted, with the Salian Franks being one particular grouping of Frankish tribes. The Salians might have been distinguished by the fact that they were settled on lands within the Roman border, which supports the fact that there were Franks that had a very clear and close relationship with the Romans. Another distinctly recognised group were the Ripuarian Franks, who were permitted to settle the Roman lands directly west of the Rhine and east of the territory of the Salians. The Franks represented the northwesternmost Germanic tribes when the Huns invaded Europe 
over the decades leading into the 5th century and due to their geographical location they were not as directly affected as many other Germanic peoples such as the Goths and the Vandals for example. The Frankish economy was relatively independent and there were many other Germanic tribes in the lands between themselves and the Huns. This did not prevent the Franks from becoming politically embroiled in the dramatic politics of the 5th century Europe, however. When 5th century European tensions reached ahead at the Battle of the Catalonian Plains in 451, which separated the military forces of Europe like a professional wrestling main event with the powerhouses of the Roman Empire on one side, led by the highly respected military leader Etius on one side, pitted against the mysterious Huns on the other side, led by their legendary ruler Attila. Each of the two team captains were joined by a supporting cast of European ethnic groups, and alongside the Romans were their federati, such as the Visigoths and the Alans, but also the Salian Franks and the Ripuarian Franks. The Huns had befriended other barbarian tribes with promises of reward, and their allies included the Gepids, among many others, but it would also include some Frankish tribes that, unlike their Salian and Ripuarian cousins, had not benefited from an agreement with the Romans. So here we can see that Frankish tribes were very much disunited as they dispersed over the decades, and this is somewhat typical of Germanic tribes who could not be described as true nations prior to the 5th century, and for many, a long time after as well. The success of the Franks following the fall of the Western Roman Empire is likely attributable not only on their maritime trading network, but also on their experiences of working alongside the Romans and their advanced technology, such as the construction of fortified castra or camps from which their lands could be governed from and defended from. So let us tell the story of how disparate groups of Frankish tribes that existed independently from each other in the 5th century became by far the largest empire in Europe by the earliest decades of the 9th century. Clovis Historians have suggested that it is altogether possible that the man called Merovi or Merovich fought alongside the Romans at the Battle of the Catalonian Plains. He is not necessarily named in sources, but we do believe that he was the king of the Salian Franks during this period, and it would have made sense that he would represent his people personally at the battle. The significance of Merovech is that he gives his name to the descendants who ruled over the Salian Franks, the Merovingians. We believe that he was the father of his successor, Schilderich. In 1653, Schilderich's tomb was discovered. It was recognisable due to the presence of a ceremonial gold signet ring engraved with the words Kildorici Regis. The impressive treasure of grave goods clearly indicate that the wealth and status of the Salian Franks was considerable. His final resting place is near the city of Tournai in the south of Belgium, which was at the heart of Frankish lands in the later half of the 5th century. 
Schilderich passed away in the year 481, and his successor as the Merovingian king of the Salian Franks was his own 15-year-old son, Clovis. By the time that Clovis had become the king, the Salian Frank status as a federatus had become meaningless because the Romans had been pushed back into Italy from their lands in Gaul and the imperial throne of the Western Roman Empire had been usurped and diminished in nominal status by a barbarian warlord called Odoacha. The only Roman ruled land that existed in Gaul was westwards along the coast from Frankish territory at the Kingdom of Soissons. The ruler of this kingdom was a man called Siagrius. Gregory of Tours, the 6th century bishop and historian, described Siagrius as the king of the Romans. Clovis had decided that the fortunes of the Salian Franks would be greater if they could take control of the kingdom of Soissons, and so he would pester Siagrius and his nation until the two entities faced off in the fateful Battle of Soissons in 486. Defeat for the forces of Siagrius at the Battle of Soissons meant that Clovis extended his influence over a larger area of the northwest coast of Europe and removed Roman rule from this area. Siagrius had no option but to flee south towards the kingdom of the Visigoths, but we're really not sure what happened exactly to him directly afterwards. We do know that the Visigoths felt nervous about having Siagrius as a refugee in their country and eventually would surrender him to Clovis, where he is suggested to have met an abrupt end. The next notable engagement came from Clovis's opposite side on the east, when King Sigebert the Lame of the Ripuarian Franks called on Clovis to help him in defending his lands against the Alemanni, yet another Germanic tribe who dominated an area of land north of the Alps. As a matter of interest, many of you will be aware of the French name for the country of Germany, Alemannia, which is a cognate with the Latin name for the Alemanni Confederation of Germanic Tribes. The culmination was the Battle of Tolbiac, which saw the heavy losses on both sides, but Clovis's ultimate victory cemented his dominance over the Alemanni, now his new subjects. A lot of our information relating to the life and reign of Clovis comes from the writings of Gregory of Tours, who would have had a motivation for promoting aspects of Catholicism in order to demonstrate that Catholicism played a large part in the original success of the Frankish peoples. Directly to the south of Clovis's territory was the Kingdom of Burgundy, and Clovis married the daughter of the recently slain King Schilperic II of Burgundy, Princess Clotilde, in the year 493. Three years after the marriage was the Battle of Tolbiac against the Alemanni that we previously described. It is said that Clovis, originally a pagan, was facing possible defeat during the battle and that he appealed to Clotilda's god for support which the god gave on the basis of Clovis's promise to convert his people to the Catholic faith 
and this did indeed happen. Clotilde has been since venerated as a saint. It seems that by now, Clovis had captured the attention of the whole of Europe with his expansionism bringing him onto the borders of both the Visigothic and Ostrogothic kingdoms. The Burgundians were sandwiched in the middle of all of these parties. Clovis would have had to have subdued the Burgundians despite being married to one of their princesses and this would enable him to take the threat of potential war with the Gothic Kingdom seriously. The Byzantine Emperor Anastasius would be pleased that a powerful rival to the Gothic Kingdoms had emerged and encouraged Clovis, even ultimately naming Clovis as a Byzantine consul in honour of his achievements. The Visigothic Kingdom had been established in southern Gaul early in the 5th century and following the collapse of Roman dominance of Western Europe, the Visigoths were able to take advantage of the vacuum created and defeat some of their weaker neighbours to build a large kingdom stretching from the middle of modern France all the way down to the southern coasts of modern Spain and Portugal. Clovis would decide to take an army south across the Vienne River obliging the Visigothic king Alaric II to engage with him at the Battle of Vie. It appears that Alaric was killed during the battle and the Visigothic army fled. This enabled Clovis to further extend his territory to take control of much of southern Gaul. Clovis was still fairly young when he defeated the Visigoths in 507. He may have been just over 40 years old he had taken the throne of a group of Frankish tribes as a teenager and within a quarter of a decade had expanded his position across lands not totally unlike the modern country of France geographically. The population of his kingdom may have even outnumbered those of the Visigothic kingdom and those of the Ostrogothic kingdom. Clovis may have been only around 45 years of age when he passed away in the year 511, but we do not have any detail about his death. We do know that he was baptised before his death, which may be why Gregory of Tours wrote so enthusiastically about him and his achievements. Gregory's account of his life is really our primary source for information about Clovis. We also know that he united the various Frankish tribes under one rule, Gregory's account also gives us some insight into how potentially wily and ruthless Clovis was in this endeavour. You may recall the story of King Sigebert the Lame of the Ripuarian Franks calling on Clovis to help him to defend his territory from the Alemanni at the Battle of Tolbiac earlier in the episode. Sigebert obtained his name, the Lame, after he was wounded in this battle. Some years later, Clovis encouraged Sigobert's son, Clodoric, to murder his father, likely on the premise of taking control of his kingdom. Clodoric did indeed murder Sigobert, but then Clovis declared Clodoric a murderer, and so Clodoric's people killed him. Clovis then pledged to be the direct ruler over these people. It is not out of the question to consider 
that this was a cunning plan concocted by Clovis. Clovis's name may have been Chlorui in the Frankish language, which was a Germanic language, as we know the Franks to be a Germanic tribe. This is the root of the German name Ludwig, but it is also the root of the French name Louis, which would be the name of 18 French kings. Unsurprising when you consider that the French have often looked back to Clovis as their original king. One of the better known King Louis was the Sun King Louis XIV, and from whom we can derive the name of the modern US state of Louisiana. However, if we travel west across the United States to New Mexico at the beginning of the 20th century, when great transcontinental railroads were first spanning the landscapes, then we can find a station called Riley Switch, renamed by the station master's daughter because she was studying about King Clovis of the Franks. She named the station and the subsequent town that was built around it Clovis, now the hometown of around 40,000 people. Around 20 years later, some arrow points were discovered that pointed towards the presence of a prehistoric peoples in this area, which we now know dates back over 10,000 years and due to its proximity to the town in New Mexico has been named the Clovis Culture, linking us all the way back to the stories of Volume 1 and in a completely different place and time in history to that of King Clovis of the Franks. The Germanic tradition of the Merovingian Franks on the death of their ruler would be that their kingdom would be split between their sons. Tuderic would rule over the kingdom of Metz, Clodomir over the kingdom of Orléans, Clothar over the kingdom of Soissons, finally Childebert over the kingdom of Paris, which contained the city of Paris, named after the Parisi tribe a Celtic tribe who lived there during classical antiquity, and Clovis's new Frankish capital city established as such before his death. After Clovis The new Frankish kingdoms were really only linked by their cultural heritage alone, and they operated very much like the Polades of ancient Greece or the Diadochi of Alexander the Great, in that there was little loyalty between the brothers. The Visigoths came under the rule of Theodoric the Great, the Ostrogothic king, and Theodoric was not particularly interested in Frankish territory, preferring to concentrate on other affairs, such as maintaining good diplomatic relationships with the Byzantines. This was fortunate for the Frankish kingdoms, who were much weaker without the rule of Clovis, but with no external threat to them, they were able to just bicker among themselves. The mother of the three sons of Clovis was Clotilde, who we mentioned earlier. Clotilde's father was murdered by a Burgundian rival and Clotilde bore a grudge against the lands of her origin as a consequence. As such, it was a collaboration of the Frankish kings who defeated the Burgundians at the Battle of Autun in 532 and brought Burgundy into 
the Frankish realm. The death of the Ostrogothic king Theodoric the Great left Ostrogothic Italy under threat from the Byzantine Empire led by Emperor Justinian and his military general Belisarius. This enabled the Franks to consume some of the Ostrogothic borderlands to their southeast. Of Clovis's four sons and his successors, Clodomir died in 524, Tuderic died in 534, and Schulebert died in 558, leading Clotar as the sole survivor and as such he became the king of all of Francia, in a similar way to his father Clovis. Clotar didn't have this honour for very long because he himself passed away in 561. This time the united Frankish kingdom was split into four again and it was the four sons of Clotar, the last surviving king of the sons of Clovis, who ruled the kingdoms. This time it was the kingdom of Paris that was consumed by the other three first, and then the territories of Soissons became known as Neustria, Metz became known as Austrasia, and the kingdom of Orléans was in control of much of Burgundy and now bordered onto the lands of the new Germanic occupants of the Italian peninsula, the Lombards. So we can journey into the 7th century now, where we see once again that one particular king would end up with control of all of Francia once again. But this time, the king was not really an all-powerful ruler of the Frankish Empire. Another man called Clotar came to rule the kingdom of Neustria. He was the grandson of King Clotar I of the Franks, of whom we just spoke of. Clotar is known as Clotar II and he would also see Francia united under one king once again. This was following a period of civil war where the kingdoms of Burgundy and Austrasia were in conflict and inevitably Clotar's Neustrian kingdom was drawn into affairs. Clotar would see off an invasion of Austrasia who had conquered Burgundy and took control of this territory reuniting Francia. Clotar II was a very assertive king and he would instigate reforms to the Merovingian church and matters of state, something seen as quite necessary in a set of kingdoms where the current setup was debilitating for the Franks in general, with the constant feuding between them. In the days of Clovis, where he had created this vast new Frankish kingdom in the wake of the fall of the Western Roman Empire, you would be mistaken for thinking that Clovis's kingdom was quite modern. In reality, it really wasn't. Rather than there being a government or a senate who separated the empire into provinces ruled by locally appointed governors who dealt with all matters of everyday life, such as industry, military, produce, taxation and justice, for example, the Frankish kingdoms had none of this kind of thing originally. It was much more simply a bunch of peasants who had been conquered and were required to pay tax to the king or else. Naturally, over time this creates social problems which slowly escalate to more threatening issues for the state and so constitutional reforms are necessary, such as those of Clotar II. Mayor of the Palace most Frankish kings would employ the services of a manager of their estate so that they didn't have to get their own hands dirty 
making day-to-day decisions to maintain order in and around their home and associated lands, leaving the king to enjoy the fruits of his occupation or to plan military campaigns against his Frankish peers. The manager of the estate was called the mayor of the palace, and this position would become quite significant in the story of the Frankish kingdoms. Kings such as Clovis, Clotar I and Clotar II appeared to be very active and responsible monarchs, but there were also predictably a number of lazy kings who would be happy to let their mayor of the palace do everything for them. The danger of this is that the king himself would lose a lot of respect within the kingdom and the mayor of the palace could become quite a powerful influence, undermining the king's authority. When Clotar II died, rule over Frankish lands passed down to his son, Dagobert. The only part of the Frankish kingdom that had its own king was the Kingdom of Aquitaine in the southwest. Dagobert was quite proactive as a king, making diplomatic decisions with other nations and campaigning against particular neighbours where he saw fit. He governed out of the city of Paris, moving from his original seat of power in Austrasia. Dagobert would rule until his death in 639, when the Frankish kingdoms would be ruled by multiple descendants yet again. This time, things were different though. Dagobert was only in his 30s when he died, and as such, his two sons who succeeded him in their respective kingdoms were just children. With no ability to rule in their own right, actual rule moved into the hands of the secular individuals, such as the mayors of the palace. This marked the period of the dominance of the mayors of the palace and the period of the do-nothing kings. The mayors of the palace were appointed from trusted noble families, as was the case with many prominent positions of court and governance. During Dagobert's childhood, he was educated by a man of highly respected stock called Arnulf, who had been granted the bishopric of Metz after his own father before him. When Dagobert reached his majority, he would have his own mayor of the palace called Pepin of Landen. And it seems that Pepin, alongside Arnulf of Metz, were not quiet about their opinions on what the young Dagobert ought to be doing as the king of the Franks. Both Pepin and Arnulf had stuck together in the past when they were highly influential in bringing Dagobert's father, Clotar II to the throne in the first place and it is likely that this is why the two men were highly trusted in the king's court. Pepin and Arnulf created their own marriage alliance when Pepin's daughter, Bega, was married to Arnulf's son, Giselle. The marriage would produce three children before Bega became an abbess in her later years and eventually venerated as a saint in Christian churches. One of their children and therefore grandson of Pepin and Arnulf was a man called Pepin of Erstal, who himself would become a mayor of the palace in the late 7th century. The reason why this is important is because this is the start of a genealogy that would come to directly affect 
the future of the entire European continent. When Pepin of Estal became the mayor of the palace in Austrasia in the year 679 or 680, the Merovingian kings were ruling in name only, and it would be people like the mayors who would do the actual ruling. Pepin of Estal's attitude to becoming the mayor of the palace of Austrasia was that of a king in his own right, and he would look to improve and expand his influence. You can compare the mayor of the palace to the role of a modern president or prime minister, but mayors would often attempt to keep their role in their family line. Pepin of Erstal is often referred to as Pepin II to distinguish him from his grandfather, Pepin of Landen, who had performed the same role. Pepin of Austrasia originally had to respect the power of his neighbours in Neustria, who themselves were being fronted by their mayor of the palace, Ebron. During his tenure, Ebron was actually appointed the next king of Neustria in turn, demonstrating how powerful this position of mayor of the palace had actually become. After Ebron died, Pepin was able to plan his own ambition to reunite Francia under his own rule. In 687, Pepin would take on the combined forces of Neustria and Burgundy at the Battle of Tertri, and his victory there would indeed see Francia united again under one rule, this time headed, in actual fact, by the mayor of the palace. Pepin would rule effectively, creating a stronger Francia going into the 8th century. He was not able to call himself king as this was still the right of the Merovingian dynasty, but he stylized himself as the Duke and Prince of the Franks. Pepin II died in 714, and he may have designated that his son Charles be the one to take his place. Charles was born by a Frankish noblewoman called Alpaida, who is also described by some chronicles as Pepin's wife. Therefore, by these facts alone, Charles was a, a legitimate heir to Papin. However, history tells us that Charles was not legitimate. John Whitney Hall's epic book, The History of the World, describes Charles as Pepin's bastard son. It is speculated by many that Alpaida was purely a mistress of Pepin, whose true wife was a lady called Plectrude. It may have suited Plectrude to portray Charles as illegitimate, as she would have preferred her own lineage to have been able to inherit the rule of Francia. Plectrude herself was highly influential during Pepin II's rule, and Pepin may have had concerns about her domineering nature that would have caused him to favour Alpaida and his son by her, Charles. This is all pure speculation though. We do know that Charles stood up against Plectrude after his father's death and claimed the right to be the mayor of the palace of Francia. Charles would go on to rule Francia for a number of years and he gathered a strong reputation and an important place in French history. You would certainly be forgiven for believing him to be a famous historic French king. The reality is he was a mayor of the palace, but effectively the monarch of Francia. He would come to be known as Charles the Hammer, 
which is a name that in the Latin tongue would have been Carolus Martellus, anglicised as Charles Martel. Charles Martel's reign coincided with a very significant event in European history, when the Muslims of the Umayyad Caliphate invaded the Visigothic kingdom of the modern country of Spain and took complete control of it, bringing them to the borders of the Frankish realms of Burgundy and Aquitaine. And this meant that Frankish differences needed to be put to one side to deal with this completely new and foreign threat to Frankish culture, a story which we will pick up on next time. Thank you very much indeed for listening to this week's episode about the Franks. This was the first in a set of around five podcast episodes, but we'll be resuming the chronological story um, in a couple of weeks uh, because next week we're going to be focusing on the Battle of Tours, which was the biggest conflict between uh, the Franks and the Umayyads and uh, we'll find out exactly how things turned out, and we'll be looking a bit more at Charles Martel as well. So that's to look forward to next week. Of course, it's been a very strange week. If uh, if you're listening to this podcast live, um, you'll be very well aware. If if you're listening to it in the future, um, this might not bear as much relevance. But right now, um, of course, um, there is a, a massive crisis in the Ukraine. Um, many people have been affected by the invasion of their country and uh, as such as a lot of people have uh, been displaced from their homes, etc. So um, I found a website where I was able to uh, make a contribution towards um, supporting uh, these people who have been affected. And, and don't get me wrong, I know, I know full well that the Ukraine is not the only country in the world where you have people who are being displaced from where they live and um, you know, have had to leave their homes and are seeking uh, refuge in, in other countries. Um, I'm, I'm completely aware of that. But, of course, um, what has happened to us here in the UK is it's been brought very close to our, uh, to our, um, to our minds by, by the media. And so um there's no reason not to want to react to this situation and so um you can go to the history of the world podcast.com website and click on the about me page just to get a link through to the international uh, rescue committee and uh, you can make a, a a contribution should you wish to there if anyone does feel compelled to try and help um please do visit that link and have a little bit, uh, have a look at some of the work that they do. And uh, maybe you can sort of do your bit. If you're if you're sitting at home thinking, I want to do something, that could be a, a, a means by which you can do it. So, um, but um, yeah, enough about that at the moment, because I know that we're not really uh, a podcast that uh, is geared towards talking about modern politics. And I've been sort of careful about choosing my words there. Um, about the situation uh, deliberately because, for that reason. So um, moving on, let's talk about the Ancient World Cup. The Ancient World Cup. It was a good group this week in the Ancient World Cup. Group N, 
contained the mighty Romans, uh, the very, very uh, romanticised Spartans, the fascinating Nazca, and uh, the very highly respected Athenians. Let's find out how you voted and who's going through to the knockout stages. The winners of the group uh, went through with 44% of the vote. Um, potentially unsurprisingly, it was the Romans. In second place, uh, with 32% of the vote, uh, were the Athenians, which meant that their Greek rivals, the Spartans, uh, have been eliminated with just 12% of the vote alongside the Nazca also with 12% of the vote. So we see the Romans and the Athenians advance to the knockout stages and we say goodbye at this very early stage to the Spartans. Uh, and also the Nazca, who um, certainly a culture that fascinates me greatly. So, uh, But we have to say goodbye to 63 of the teams at some point or another. There can only be one winner. That is the end of Group N. Everyone have voted 50 votes this week, a very healthy amount. Next week is Group O. Let's uh, have a look at who's in Group O. This is an excellent group. We had the Vandals. We have the Visigoths. Very interesting. The Visigoths are um, a group of peoples that uh, actually took over the lands of the Vandals. Um, that uh, The Vandals actually took in Iberia. The Visigoths uh, ended up uh, stepping in and taking all of those lands off the Vandals who escaped over to North Africa. We've got the Siambe, who um, who were the um, well, they they were like the the nomadic rivals, if you like, that were based to the east of the Tiongnu, in uh, in the eastern steppe, and uh, certainly um, you know quietly quite closely um, linked to uh, the period of China, the sort of the dark ages of China, where the Tianbei actually had um, some some degree of control over some of the Chinese uh, sort of independent states or kingdoms, if you like. Um, and uh, then finally, uh, to make up the numbers in this group, we have the Mycenaeans. So, the, so that's it. We've got the Vandals, the Visigoths, the Tianbei and the Mycenaeans voting will start uh, on Monday, I believe. Listener messages and reviews. So uh, we've got one message this week from Nader Katin, who's putting just started listening and love it. So well put together and just enough detail. I'm only on volume one, uh, episode seven, and you just read a listener's feedback or just read, I should say, and you just read a listener's feedback that they wanted you to ditch the reverb of your subject matter announcements. No. I haven't skipped ahead to see, but I really hope you don't leave them. Uh, I really hope you leave them in there. They make me smile every time. Hilarious. And then they complain about your accent, only to compliment you at the end. That is also part of the fun. Those of us interested in evolution, I would also, uh, I would think, are also interested in the evolution of language, and thus it is testimony to changes as a result of geography and other side, other outside and inside forces. Love the accent, don't change a thing. Thanks for doing what you do, I will be supporting you through Patreon. That's very kind of you, Nader. That's, um, Patreon, of course, is 
where um, you can support the podcast. If you do enjoy the podcast and want to contribute towards its future success, you can. Uh, just simply go to the historyoftheworldpodcast.com website and uh, click on the Patreon link. And uh, when you do, you become a lifelong member of the History of the World podcast Illuminati. And um, we always um, share the information about who has um, joined the History of the World podcast Illuminati each week. And uh, this week we welcome in Andy Wankel, who is now a lifelong member of the History of the World podcast Illuminati. Thank you, Andy, and uh, thank you for helping me to make this podcast as good as possible. Now, it was a long one last week, so I'm going to wrap up very quickly this week. So next week, we're going to be looking at the Battle of Tours in our uh, in our journey with the Frankish uh, kingdoms. And uh, certainly, we'll be looking more closely at Charles Martel as well and finding out exactly what happened when the Umayyads really penetrated uh, deep into Europe, into Western Europe, um, from across the Straits of Gibraltar uh, from North Africa. So we'll be talking about that next week. Um, until then, have a great week, everyone. Stay safe and be good. The History of the World podcast, written and presented by Chris Hasler. Please consider making a financial contribution by going to the historyoftheworldpodcast.com website and clicking on the Patreon link. Email the show at historyoftheworldpodcast at mail.com And don't forget to join our social media at Facebook, Twitter, Instagram and Tumblr. See you next time.